When I was thinking about a Christmas sermon series, I thought, sure, we can do what a lot of churches do and look at the birth narratives in the gospel and in the gospels in many different ways. But I believe you would be better served if you could see how the entire Bible develops the story of the coming king before we ever even get to the birth narratives. Scripture is, and this is important, if you want to write this down, write this down, is what we call progressive revelation. What is that? What is progressive revelation? This is what it means. The stories, the themes, the promises in Scripture, they start off very vague and obscure, but these stories, these themes, these promises become more clear and more specific as time goes on. Revelation in Scripture progresses in the sense that Scripture becomes more clear and more specific as time goes on. For instance, the obscure mention of a serpent crusher in the garden becomes Jesus casting Satan in the lake of fire in Revelation. Another example. In Genesis, the entire world will be blessed through Abraham's seed. That's not very detailed. That's not, we don't know exactly what that means when we read that. But when we get to the New Testament, well, the entire New Testament's actually spelling that out. It's salvation through Jesus Christ, the entire world receiving salvation through Jesus Christ. It becomes so much more specific because it comes through justification. It comes through imputed righteousness. It comes through penal substitutionary atonement. Something you wouldn't see in the promises of Abraham. You may be able to come across some passages referring to penal substitutionary atonement and imputed righteousness early on in the Old Testament, but it's not as clear until you get to the New Testament. Scripture progresses in the clarity of its revelation as time goes on. And with this sermon series, we are tracing the messianic theme. This theme is obscure in the beginning, but it becomes more specific and more detailed as we continue reading the Old Testament and as we go on into the New. And I want your minds to be blown away by Scripture. I want, when you finally can see the cohesiveness of Scripture in such a way, I want you to be absolutely amazed by it. I thought about, I thought for a second, should I give them an illustration of the way Scripture works in terms of its cohesiveness and progressive revelation? And I thought I could get into a lot of trouble doing this because really there's nothing like Scripture. 
but I'm going to attempt to anyway. And, if you, and it's going to be helpful to help you see if you can distinguish what's different from Scripture from what I'm about to compare it to. The only thing I can think of that's similar, and I was even thinking about a book series, but book series are written by the same author. There's not a bunch of different authors writing it. So the only thing I could think of that's even somewhat similar is something like the Marvel Universe movies. And hear me rightly when I say this. Scripture is inerrant and inspired. The Marvel movies are not. Okay? So let's not get that confused. But how is the Marvel Universe created and how does it function? Listen to this comparison. There are 23 Marvel movies... And each Marvel movie is its own individual story. It's about its own individual character. And each, like I said, each movie tells its own story. But these movies are not unrelated from one another. Because they all belong to the same universe, each movie, in its stories and in its characters, they have to be consistent with one another. For instance, Everything when you watch a Captain America movie, everything in Captain America has to be consistent with what you find in Iron Man. And often when you watch an Iron Man movie, you'll see things that you saw in Captain America or Spider-Man coming into the Iron Man movies. They all interrelate, interconnect. They tell their own story. Each movie tells their own story but they are not standalone movies, if that makes sense. The Marvel stories are tied to the bigger, overarching meta narrative that creates the Marvel Universe. There are 23 different stories that come together to create one grand story. Similarly, Scripture has 66 books, 66 stories that have to be consistent and work together to create one grand overarching story. Genesis, Isaiah, Ruth, the Gospels, they all have a meta narrative running through them. All 66 books have this great meta narrative running through them. Each individual book of the Bible is one little piece of a story that makes up the larger story of Scripture. Does that make sense? And what's amazing about that, absolutely amazing about that, is that when you think about 40-something different authors of Scripture telling their own different story in their own time, in their own location, and often one author can't even read stuff that happened before him, what you would think about with 40 different authors telling their own stories is that would be such inconsistency. It would be a disaster, you would think. But what we see is consistency. And when you understand that all of these authors are working together to contribute to tell one amazing historical truth, reality, over a 2,000-year period, 
That consistency only demonstrates that there is really one great mind narrating it all, producing it all. God. That's the only reason there would be consistency. So my hope for you this morning is for you to have that understanding of Scripture, for you to see the beauty of Scripture, you to see the cohesiveness of Scripture. And the point of tracing these themes is when you read the Gospels and you come to Jesus, descendant of Abraham, descendant of David and Matthew, or Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, I want those phrases to have such deep meaning for you. I want them to be so rich. I want them to have so much depth when you see them. So my plea for all of us this morning is let's not wade in the shallows. My plea is for you to follow along and let's dig deep into Scripture And by the time that we get to the birth narratives in a couple of weeks, you're going to see them in ways that you've never seen them before. I want us to search the depths of Scripture so that when we read about Jesus, we get a complete picture of who he is and what he's done. God's word is so amazing. And we're invited to search it deeply. Proverbs says, search for it like like treasure, like much fine gold and silver. And when we search scriptures like that, when we plumb the depths of scriptures like that, it says that we will be richly rewarded. So far, in the book of Samuel... There is a shepherd boy named David. I'm sure you guys have heard of him before. And God, up until our text, has been using David in many different ways. He gave David the courage and the tactical intelligence and skill to defeat the giant Goliath. When King Saul tried to have David killed, God helped David escape and Saul eventually dies. In the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the immediate context of our text, you go back to chapter 6, it talks about the Ark of the Covenant. What had happened is the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant, and in our immediate context, it's been brought back to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was where God was. And now, in our text, David is the king of Israel. He's the king of Israel. And verse 1 tells us that this was a great time for David and Israel by saying, look at this. The king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. So David, because he appreciates all that God has done for him, making him, putting him in a house and giving him this rest, David now wants to do something in return for God. Notice the word when in verse 1. He wanted to do something for God when God gave David a house and rest. And so verse 2 
David says to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cider, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. What does that mean? What does it mean that God, this is the ark of God, which is where God is, that God dwells in a tent? What does that mean? Think all the way back to the book of Exodus. What did the Israelites build in the book of Exodus? A tabernacle, right? Most of the last half of the book of Exodus is about the detailed construction of the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? The tabernacle, we've talked about temple themes in here before, the tabernacle was the place where God dwelled. It was the place where man's space and God's space became one. It was the place where the Israelites, they can go to the tabernacle and enjoy the presence of God in a special way. There was much more that was being done there, sacrifices and other things. But at the heart of it, it's where God dwelled. That's why they call it his house. And at the, we see it called the house too because at the very end of Exodus, the very last thing that happens is God, he comes down and he starts, he, this is the glory of God comes down and he takes up residence within the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Long story short, and for our purposes, the tabernacle is described as a tent. The tabernacle was a tent because God's dwelling place in the wilderness needed to be mobile. Wanted to move his dwelling place around. We can even see the mobility of God in the tabernacle in our text. Look at the second half of verse 6 and uh, in verse, first half of verse 7. It says, I, God, have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. And so when David is saying, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent, what David is doing is he is contrasting the living conditions of him and God. God has given David everything. God has given David a nice, permanent, comfortable structure to live in. And so David wants a comfortable, permanent structure for God to dwell in. Is that clear so far? To use biblical terms, David wants the mobile and fragile tabernacle tent to become a sturdy, stationary, permanent temple. If you're like me, and I so just want to go all over the place, and you can just nerd out on this stuff all day, I invite you in your free time to go to Deuteronomy 12 and read how the tabernacle becoming a temple was the plan all along. In Deuteronomy 12, when the Israelites had defeated their enemies and God gave them rest, which is exactly what it says in verse 1 of our text, God gave them rest, there was supposed to be a central place of worship. So after they're established, they've defeated their enemies, there's a king, there's going to be a central place for them to go worship. This was the plan all along. So verses 1 and 2 
are the setup for our text to come. The point is that David wants to do something for God out of appreciation. He wants to build God a glorious, solid, stationary structure for God to dwell in. So the prophet Nathan, he responds to David in verse 3, and he tells David, go ahead with your plans. God's with you in this. He gives David God's stamp of approval to do it. Well, David was wrong, or uh, sorry, Nathan was wrong, because God had something else to say about the matter altogether. Nathan was a prophet. He was in David's entourage, and in our text, God comes to Nathan so that Nathan can tell David what God thinks of the temple and of some promises that are to come. The first thing we see is that God tells Nathan that God doesn't need a temple. God doesn't need a temple. At least he doesn't want David to build it anyway. Look at the middle of verse 5 and 6. Would you build me a house to dwell in, God says? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up my people Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. So God doesn't want David to build the temple, and he gives a couple of reasons why. First, it seems the focus on saying that he's been moving, that at least for this time, Yahweh wants to continue having the freedom and mobility to move around. Perhaps it's not time for Deuteronomy 12 to come about. Second, God simply states that he's never asked anyone to do it before. So far, none of the judges of Israel, the book of Judges is before this book, these books of Samuel. And so he's like, I've never asked anybody from the judges to, to build me a temple. But he would later allow for a temple, and we'll see that later. What we're seeing here in verses 5 and 6 is God, and 7, is that God is rejecting God's, or David's plan to build a temple. God is rejecting David's plan to do something for him. And that can happen to any of us, right? God wants us all to plan. He wants us to be creative and to do things for the kingdom. But often those plans don't bear a lot of fruit. Often the things that we have simply aren't God's plans. And maybe it's not God's timing. We see, mis we see missionaries, we see ministries, and other people set out to do great things for the kingdom of God. But their vision for what would happen doesn't always come to fruition. And we shouldn't be discouraged by that. We should still continue to plan, be creative, and do things, but, but hold those plans loosely. God might have other plans. So God rejects David's plan to build a temple. But God goes on to tell Nathan, tell David these promises. Tell David these promises in verses 8 to 17. There are two kinds of promises being told in verses 8 to 17. First, verses 8 to 11, these are promises that are going to come true during David's lifetime. Verses 8 to 11 are about promises that are going to come true during David's lifetime. Verse 8 says God well, first off, God, before he does that, he wants to remind David 
Just who has served who? Who has done great things for who? God made a lowly shepherd boy named David a king, verse 8. God gave David victory over all his battles he's had to fight, verse 9. But then God goes on to say that he's going to make David's name great. And that's the end of verse 9. He also says that Israel is going to have a permanent dwelling place and rest from their enemies. Verse 10. This morning, once again, I don't have time to show you how these were fulfilled in David's lifetime. But if you want to go home and, and search some places how this was fulfilled in his lifetime, just go to the very next chapter. Go to chapter 8. And compare the promises in verses 8 to 11 with what's being said there. Look at the very end of verse 11. Look at that strange sentence. God said to David, The Lord will make you a house. The Lord will make you a house. What does that mean? What does it mean that the Lord is going to make David a house? Is he going to build him a better palace? Is he going to give him an even greater house to dwell in? What does that mean? What we are about to look at in the remaining verses is what is known as the Davidic covenant. And it's one of the most important chapters and verses in all of Scripture. It's one of the most influential of all the later writers. Everybody knew, well, I don't want to give anything away, but it's it's just one of the most influential areas in all of Scripture. You'll see it echoed all throughout Scripture. Jesus, son of David, giving stuff away. What does that mean that he's going to make David a house? We said verses 8 to 11 are promises that are going to happen during David's lifetime. Verses 12 to 17 are promises that are going to happen after David dies. Where do I see that? Not only do the promises fulfilled after he dies, but look at the beginning of verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, meaning when you die, this stuff's going to happen. So this house that God is going to build for David, these promises that come in verses 12 to 17, they're going to be fulfilled after David dies. Remember that. What does it mean that God's going to build David a house? Look at verse 12. After David dies, the text goes on to say, God will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and it says God will establish his kingdom skip down to verse 16 and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure so taking these two verses together we see that David is going to have descendants who are going to rule over Israel he's going to have royal descendants. What we are seeing is that God is playing on the word house here. There's a play on the word house. David, when he says house, 
He means a structure, a temple. When God says that he's going to build David a house, he means a family. A kingly, royal lineage. And these passages, they teach us a few things about this royal lineage. The first thing we see is that one of David's descendants will build the temple, beginning of verse 13. He says, he shall build a house for my name. Who does that? Who builds the temple? Solomon. Solomon builds the temple. And after David dies, we see in the book of 1 Kings chapter 6 that Solomon builds the temple for God. And the same thing we saw at the end of Exodus chapter 40 where the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. The same thing, 1 Kings 6, the glory of the Lord comes and fills the temple. And by the way, later in Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord departs from the temple because of their covenant disobedience. So the first thing we see is that he's going to have a descendant build the temple. It's going to be Solomon. The second thing we see is that the relationship between David's descendants and God is also going to have a family sort of nature to it. Beginning of verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. If you're interested in in background sort of stuff, and even going back to the beginning of creation... Uh, in the ancient Near East and in Scripture, there was the idea that if you were a king, if you were a ruler, you were considered to be the son of God. For instance, Pharaoh was known as the son of God. Ruling meant reflecting God's image and being like him, like a son is like a father. And that's the difference, actually, between the ancient Near East and Scripture, whereas in the ancient Near East, Egypt and all these other places, only the king was in the image of God because he was the only one that ruled. In Genesis, when God creates men and women, he gives them all dominion over the earth. They're all kings. They're all in the image of God. It's a side note, though. Here in our text... Ruling and reflecting God's image is tied to David's descendants. David's descendants are going to have a father-son relationship with God. And here's one way that it's going to be like a father-son relationship. Look at verse 14. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the Son of Men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. So there's going to be an eternal bond and love for David's kingly descendants. There's obedience is implied. If they're not obedient, they'll be disciplined. And that's what we see later on with David's descendants. When they, when they aren't obedient, we see God discipline them by sending armies or something, a, a rebuke, a prophet to correct them in some way to get them back on track. There's a commitment between God and David's descendants. That's this covenant relationship that there's going to happen between God and David's descendants. And it's going to be like a father with a son. The last 
And perhaps most important thing we see in the promise of a kingly line is that it's eternal. Look at the end of verse 13. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now listen to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. As one scholar pointed out, the the word forever doesn't necessarily mean that it's eternal, but the repetitive nature of it, the fact that it keeps repeating in the text, seems to be pointing, really trying to stress the point that this is going to go on for eternity. Forever, forever, forever. I want to answer the question, how will David's kingdom be eternal? What does that look like? Before I do that, though, let me summarize and perhaps give you the main principle we can take away from the text this morning. Though David will not build God a temple, God will build David an eternal royal family. And this covenant of this royal, eternal family that God has made with David is so relevant and important to us because it has to do with our salvation. One thing we can learn is this. Though David wanted to serve God by building him a temple, what we see is that God ultimately serves us. God doesn't need people to serve him. And in the same way, especially when it comes to salvation, is that God serves us. He does it all. We'll come back to that in a minute. Back to our question. How is David's kingdom going to be eternal? There are two ways. One way, God could simply be saying that his kingdom will be eternal is that David's always going to have a human representative to a a descendant to succeed the one that came before. There's always going to be a descendant, a never-ending line of descendants. That's what could be saying. Meaning just as any other dynasty has kings that succeed one another, God could simply just be saying David will always have a new descendant. Or the other way that David's kingdom could be eternal is that at some point, one person from David's lineage will rule forever. At some point, one descendant from David's lineage will rule forever. That's the other option. What does Scripture teach happened? Does David have a never-ending line of succession of, of descendants? Or does he have eventually one descendant that rules eternally? If you guys want to know what Scripture is all about... 
If you want to know what every book of the Bible is building towards and talking about in some way, it's this. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. In the Garden of Eden, the serpent had usurped the kingdom through the willing actions of Adam and Eve. And the rest of Scripture after the fall is about God taking back his world from the serpent by slowly establishing the heavenly kingdom on the earth. Which is why we pray, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What have we seen so far this sermon series with Tim's excellent sermons the last two weeks? What have we seen today and the last two weeks? We've been tracing the messianic line. What we've seen the first week is that the messianic line begins generally with Abraham. God told Abraham in Genesis 17, 6, this one man, he tells this one man, out of you, kings are going to come from you. So we see it begin generally with Abraham. And then last week, we see the messianic line narrow from Abraham generally to more specifically to Judah's descendants. The promise was... If you remember last week, that the people will obey Judah and his descendants and that the scepter is not going to depart from Judah. Which is one reason, as a side note, Saul was never the true king. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. David is from the tribe of Judah. The promised king was through Judah. Starts with Abraham generally, more specifically to Judah. And now this morning we've seen the line get even more narrow, going from Abraham to Judah, and from within Judah, the kings will only come through David's descendants. This is the progressive revelation I was talking about this morning. For a sort of silly illustration, but I think it'll help you understand, it'd be like someone saying, The U.S. presidents are only going to be U.S. citizens. And then later on, someone says, within the U.S. citizens, the presidents are only going to come from the non-controversial Reagan family. And then within the Reagan family, someone says, the descendants, the presidents, will only come from Ronald Reagan's descendants. It's just that sort of narrowing that's happening in Scripture. Obviously, that's not what happens in the U.S., but that is how Scripture is progressively revealing the messianic line. And what we're going to see next week and for the rest of today is that the messianic line is going to get even more narrow than David's descendants. It goes from David's descendants to one descendant of David. One great mighty king. This morning, I want to show you a couple of different Old Testament glimpses of this coming king. I understand that some of you are going to want to see the text for yourself. Some of you 
we'll just want to hear, but if you want to see the text for yourself, you can grab a pew Bible, and I can tell you the exact page number so you can get there faster. If you don't want to turn there, you can just listen to the text, and I'll read the verses out loud. I could go to so many places, but I first want you to see how the Old Testament starts to talk about one Davidic king to see the messianic line narrowed even more. Turn to Jeremiah 23, that's page 773 in your pew Bible. 773. Still hear pages turning. I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he, singular, shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. There's so much to unpack here, but simply what I want you to see is that it's talking about one Davidic king that's coming. This is in the Old Testament. Now turn to Isaiah 6, 678, page 678 in your pew Bible. We have two more places to go. I'm going to read verses 2 to 3. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So there's a throne room vision going on here. And what I want you to see here is that the one that is sitting on this throne is divine. Only God himself is holy, holy, holy. And only God has the entire earth filled with his glory. Question for you. And if you were at my Wednesday night prayer meeting, you can't answer. How do I know that Isaiah is seeing Jesus in this vision in Isaiah 6? You don't have to turn there for time. But later, if you go to the book of John 12, John chapter 12, John quotes Isaiah 6, the throne room vision that I'm talking about. He quotes that chapter. And listen to what John says after that quotation in verse 41. He says, Isaiah said said these things because he saw his, referring to Jesus' glory, and spoke of Jesus. Isaiah, in chapter 6, is seeing Jesus on the throne. Holy, 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 the earth is full of his glory. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who's being eternally worshipped in heaven, sitting on the throne in Isaiah 6. The Old Testament has another heavenly throne vision in, the old, uh, in it. And it gives us a different angle to look at concerning this coming king. Turn to Ezekiel 1, page 823 in the Pew Bible. 
I'll give you the verse in a few seconds. Before I give you the verse, I want to explain what's going on here. In this first chapter of Ezekiel, the prophet is describing this this strange scene. He doesn't know exactly what's going on. It begins with Ezekiel seeing a lot of faces. Who are these? Seraphim? Angels? We don't know. But then, in the faces, Ezekiel, he sees some wills. And then Ezekiel focuses on the wills for a couple verses, and he starts describing the wills. And then Ezekiel looks up, and he notices that the wills are attached to a throne. And then he starts describing the throne for several verses. But then Ezekiel notices that someone is actually sitting on the throne. And so he shifts his attention from the throne to the person that is sitting on the throne. Now, look at verse 26, describing the one that's on the throne. This is amazing. It says, Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Do you see that? As one scholar has mentioned, rabbis wouldn't allow young men, men under 40, to read this text because seeing a man sit on a heavenly throne would have caused all kinds of confusion and made him run wild with all kinds of ideas. A man on a heavenly throne When we look at these two authors, Isaiah and Ezekiel, their two throne visions, we're beginning to see two pieces of a puzzle come together to create a picture of this coming king. Isaiah sees this king as divine. Ezekiel sees the king as a human. Who does that remind you of? How perplexing must that have been in the Old Testament? What perhaps is just as surprising is that this king, and we see him in Isaiah 6, and he's sitting on the throne, and he's being worshipped, but then he gets up off the throne, and later on in Isaiah 40 to 55, we're going through that on Wednesdays if you're interested in that, in Isaiah 40 to 55, he leaves the eternal throne, he comes to earth to be mocked and to suffer for the sins of Israel, attracting the nations like a light to Yahweh in the process. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Goes on, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
The whole world is going to see the salvation brought by this God-man king and become partakers in it. Isaiah 49, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That is not a throwaway passage. I know for us as Gentiles, especially in America, yeah, of course salvation's coming to us. We're so important. But imagine being a Jew in Israel and your little tiny nation, now this God of your little tiny nation is being worshipped all over the world. That's big. There's so many other things I want to look at and we can't. The, this new king, this king's work, this human divine king's work is going to launch the new creation, Isaiah 65, which by the way is the dawning of the dawning of new creation is at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, the Jews, they were expecting a great king. They were expecting a great Messiah to come. What nobody expected was that this king would be God himself. Coming to do a job that only God can. Jesus is the ultimate descendant of David. Yes, Solomon may have built God's temple, but Jesus built God's house. A worldwide family. David's descendants will rule forever, not because of eternal succession, but because Jesus reigns forever. And so this Christmas, when we're reading these birth narratives, know that there is so much going on in the, the Old Testament about this coming king long before we ever even get to the birth narratives. And so lastly and quickly, one of the points we can take away from our text this morning is this. Though we desire to do things for God, God is ultimately the one and ultimately does and serves us, does things for us and serves us. We like to figure out how we can serve God in some way. We come up with, with ministries. We decide to dedicate ourselves to the mission field, all great things, all things we should continue doing. Some of us, though, have to constantly fight the sinful mindset that thinks our good deeds earn favor with God, that our works somehow bring us to God. We're like, to, to use a biblical illustration, those at the Tower of Babel building a tower that can reach to God. But the entire point of Christmas, the entire point of this God-man baby laying in a manger is that we're so lost, so helpless that we don't build a tower to God. God has to come down to us. God planned it. God executed everything. God called Abraham and David and came into the world himself. Jesus is the one who lived every second perfectly. Jesus is the one who loved perfectly. Jesus is the one who went to the cross. All of salvation 
was paid for and done 2,000 years before you were even born. What have you done? What have you contributed? The best thing you can do is worship the king. If you're visiting or listening in, I invite you, I plead with you, come to know Jesus Christ this Christmas season. This strange story about a God-man baby in a manger is actually the story about how our God, our Creator, became King. If you will repent from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ this morning, He will forgive you for everything, everything you've ever done, because of the work that He has done in His life and in His death, taking the punishment for your sins on the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your wonderful story, for your consistent, cohesive, progressive story about the coming King. We pray that you would prepare our hearts this week and be with Rolf this coming Sunday as we are going to dig deeper into seeing how the Old Testament talks about one coming king. And I pray this, and I ask also, just as the angels were rejoicing at the birth of Jesus, the shepherds were rejoicing at the birth of Jesus, would you give us all joy in the birth of Jesus this Christmas season in a time that is so desperately needed? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.